Last week was uh, a penitential song uh, out of Psalm 32. Uh, Today we're going to teach Psalm 51, which is one of those seven penitential psalms, psalms of repentance. Uh, Probably, normally I I enjoy uh, digging deep and dwelling in the depths of the scriptures. And there's 19 verses in this psalm. So really, I really would be, probably would be better is utilize several weeks to teach this chapter. And I prayed about it, and I decided just to go ahead and preach the entire chapter, all 19 verses today. We're going to actually kind of scratch the surface of it and go rather fast. The context of this psalm is as follows. David had been rebuked by the prophet Nahum for his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. And now, in the lament form of this psalm, David displays a contrite, repented heart and his desire for restoration to God. He has the same contrite and repented heart that is required from all of us before we go to the Lord's Supper today. The same contrite, repented heart that we must have daily as we daily, continually repent towards our God. Repent towards God and thrust ourselves upon Christ, the one who saved God's elect. And the division of today's study is as follows. Verses 1 through 2 is prayer for individual restoration. Don't we all need restoration? Verses 3 through 6 is confession and contrition. 7 through 12 is prayer for restoration. 13 through 17 is thanksgiving and being fruitful. Verses 18 through 19 is prayer for national restoration. And don't we need national restoration? As we know, Brother Nathan was in Washington, D.C. over the last few days regarding national restoration. Our nation needs a lot of restoration. We're going to begin again with verses 1 through 2, a prayer for individual restoration. And the pulpit is falling apart. It's actually not falling apart. It's got a big plastic Tupperware thing here full of all kinds of goodies. Um, Maybe I'll edit that part out of the sermon. I don't know. Verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 1, David asks for mercy because he knows that he deserves to be punished by God. He knows that he deserves death because of his capital crimes that he committed against God, adultery and murder. And we all need God's mercy, especially this knucklehead here, this preacher. In the Hebrew, he referred to God as Elohim, which means he's recognizing God as one of his attributes or names that God is almighty. The supremacy of God, that God is the mighty ruler, king, and judge over all things. He is sovereign over everything. He is sovereign over COVID. He is sovereign over the election. He knows the end before it even started. Though God is just, David points to God's loving kindness. And that according to God's attribute of mercifulness, he asks God to blot out my transgressions. David is basically saying, Lord, I don't deserve it, but please approach this wicked person and be merciful to me, a sinner. Let that be our prayer, too. 
You know, if there ever was a sinner's prayer, which this church does not believe in repeating a sinner's prayer to be saved, but if there ever was a sinner's prayer, this is a sinner's prayer. That God chose him as his elect and he's responding in that election. He's responding in repentance and prayer and confession. This phrase to blot out is the Hebrew word makao, which means to stroke or rub, to erase, to smooth, as if with oil, to abolish, to destroy, to put out, to wipe away or wipe out, or to obliterate or exterminate our sins. You ever polish something, wax your car, put a rubbing compound on it to detail it out? That's what the Lord Jesus Christ did to our sins. Amen? This Hebrew word. And in verse 2, he pleaded for God to wash me thoroughly and cleanse me, he said. The word wash is the Hebrew word kabos, which means to trample upon, to wash properly by stomping on by our feet like we would a grape turning into wine. Or to tread upon, uh, or to perform the work of a fuller. Today, many patriotic-minded people fly a flag that I actually agree with, and it says, don't tread on me. And rightfully so, that don't tread on me flag or principle, it's not just a cliche, it is a principle, and it's rightfully telling the government to stand down from tyranny, or from being too authoritarian or too regulative. But on the contrary, church, listen to this, David actually was asking God to tread on me like a fuller, like a wine press. Lord, please do tread on me. Macau, please cleanse me like a fuller. Please cleanse me like a dry cleaner, cleaning our clothing, especially our Sunday best. Lord, forge me like a piece of metal on an anvil or like a horseshoe on an anvil that shapes and molds us. David was asking God to put him through that process. After asking the Lord to wash me thoroughly, in verse 2b, David says, cleanse me from my sin. It was wash me, now it's cleanse me. This cleanse me is the Hebrew word tahar, which means to be pure, to be unadulterated, to be Levitically uncontaminated, morally innocent or holy, to purify and purge or to be cleansed ceremonially. In the New Testament today, in the New Covenant at church, we must be holy to enter the kingdom of God. Thus says the word of God. And the only way we can be holy and righteous is through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The imputation of Christ's righteousness and God's holiness upon us. Can we ever stand before God on judgment day? In the Old Testament, this was accomplished by the slaying and sacrificing of an animal. And that animal had to be perfect and unblemished. In the New Testament, Christ is the perfect, sinless, spotless, unblemished Lamb of God who was slain for the foundation of God's elect within this large world. It is now Christ who can justify the sinner. It is Him only that can declare us righteous before the Father or pronounce us clean and holy and cleansed and washed. I originally thought this was Richard Baxter, who I love reading, but it's actually Sir Richard Baker, who was a politician. Yeah, a politician. Here's one you can trust. 
a politician and a pastor, Sir Richard Baker, hundreds of years ago said this regarding these two words, wash and cleanse. Quote, why use two words when you can, when one could serve? For if we be cleansed, what matter if we be washed or no? Yet David had great reason for using both words. For he requires not that God would cleanse him by a miracle, but by the ordinary way of cleansing. And this was washing. He names, therefore, washing as the means and cleansing as the end. He names washing as the work a doing and cleansing as the work done. He names washing as considering the agent and cleansing as applying it to the patient. And indeed, as in the figure of the law, there was not. So in the verity of the gospel, there is not any ordinary means of cleansing, but only by washing, and therefore out of Christ, our Savior's side, there flowed water and blood. Amen. Next, in verses 3 through 6, is confession and contrition. Verse 3. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. David was saying that I publicly acknowledge that I have broken your law. And because it was a public sin, he is publicly confessing his sin in this psalm that God recorded for us. That's exactly what we should do too when we sin against the Lord publicly. And we, in front of people, we should confess and repent publicly. Verse 4. Against thee, thee only have I sinned. And done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. He said, Against thee, thee only have I sinned. Oh, sure, he sinned against Bathsheba and her husband, and sure, he sinned against Uriah, but first and foremost, he sinned against God. He sinned against God. We have to make sure that we don't put man before God lest we commit idolatry. Regarding our marriages, he committed adultery. Regarding our marriages, we need to be proactive and put up safeguards or precautionary measures so that we too don't spiral down into adultery or fornication if you're single. You know, there's, I used to use the language, somebody falls into sin or they fall into adultery. I guarantee no man ever fell into, accidentally tripped and fell into a naked woman's arms. They intentionally go there. We don't fall into sin. It took me a while to admit that I should not have female friends. When I first got married, I thought I can have a female friend. As long as she's a Christian, I'm a Christian. We're equally yoked. And then I realized it's possible for this sinner to commit adultery if I do not put up safeguards. So I had to make a policy that I could no longer have, though I haven't committed adultery on my wife, there was a relationship over two decades ago that I got emotionally attached to somebody. And what's right to do is to repent and put up that safeguard. In other words, my motto now is I'm allergic to pretty women. I'm allergic. The news media laughed at Vice President Mike Pence. They mocked him, wrongfully mocked him from the liberal media, mocked our vice president because he had marital safeguards. And during the debates, he said that I will not eat alone with a woman, and I haven't since I've been married. 
Isn't that a beautiful testimony? And the world mocks at that. I'm sure the vice president rejoices, as the scripture says. Rejoice in all things. Now verse 5, it says, Behold, I was shaped in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We were sinners not just at birth, or when we first stole our first toy, or when we told our first lie, but we were sinners at conception. We were shaped and formed in iniquity just like David and conceived in sin upon the conception when our mothers and fathers created us in the image of God. We've gone over Romans 5 so much in catechism, but according to Romans 5 again, it says, a paraphrase, that we've been born under the sin nature of the first Adam, and that is why we must be born twice, born again under the non-sin nature, the perfect nature of of the second Adam, whom is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Verse 7 or verse 6. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. God hates sin, but he loves truth and faithfulness in a man's inward being. The scariest thought in the world, my friends, the scariest thought that we could even think of is to know that God knows our thoughts. Think about that. Just me telling you to think about that. If you thought about it, God knew that you just thought about it. That's the omniscience of Almighty God, Elohim. Isn't that amazing? It's wonderful, but it's also very scary. Next in verses 7 through 12 is prayer for restoration. Verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. He's boasting in the Lord. He's not. This isn't me, me, me. He's boasting in God here. If you do this, I will be this. Because it's all God. It's all Him. In Leviticus 14, chapter 1, verses 1 through 8, hyssop and running water was used in the ceremony of cleansing a leper. David was saying, Lord... I am a moral leper, or really an immoral leper. Purge me with hyssop, wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let's talk about joy. Verse 8. Joy is kind of mentioned sporadically through this chapter. First it mentions joy in verse 8. Make me hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. When we, one of the reasons why we lack joy, I'll speak of myself, and I know it applies to all of us. When I am lacking joy, most often it's because of unrepented sin or unconfessed sin. When we are in unconfessed or unrepented sin, or both, we lose our joy and our gladness. We lose our song. Can't lose our salvation, but we lose the joy of our salvation. David was saying, let me hear the music and rejoicing once again, O Lord. He's begging God for mercy. Being in a backslidden state is to be at odds with God. It's a spiritual crippling to our bones. But once restored, we can now sing and dance again. Sing and dance joy in the Lord. It says in Proverbs 17:22, a joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. 
If we are not confessing, continually confessing, continually repenting from sin, our bones will be all dried up. And our joy, this is not a very scholarly word, but our joy will be sucked right out of us. It's like the wind being taken out of our sails. More on joy later. Verse 9. Hide thy face from my bones and blot out all my iniquities. David knows that the Lord cannot even look at sin. And so he asked the Lord to turn his face away from looking at sins. Oh Lord, don't even look at me. I'm so ashamed. I'm so disgusted with myself. That's an evidence of salvation when a person is disgusted with their sins. But not to just look away and ignore his sins, but he wants God to deal with his sins, to blot out his sins, to wash him, to cleanse him, and blot out his sins. Lest we forget the doctrines of propitiation and expiation. In summary, Christ's propitiation removes the punishment of our sin, and his expiation removes the guilt of our sin. Verse 10, moving fast through these verses, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. David knew that his heart was spiritually sick. As it says in Jeremiah 17, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who could know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. So we cannot trust in our heart. Don't rely on your gut feeling because your guts are full of guts. Don't rely on your heart because it's desperately wicked and deceitful. Matter of fact, Robin's beautiful wife wasn't able to be here either today. We didn't mention her earlier because she had to work. She's definitely an essential worker. She's a registered nurse. And working at the hospital where I spent some time at myself... On the wall, in huge letters, it says this in Ezekiel 36:26, inside the hallway of the cardiac unit. And it says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's an encouraging thing to see from your hospital bed through a hospital door. Isn't that a beautiful passage to have in a heart unit? Verse 11. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. I don't understand why. I guess the Reformers are afraid of being accused of engaging in Pentecostalism or charismania or strange fire. But many Reformers, unfortunately, seem to shy away from talking about the third distinct person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. My dear friends... That's how God dwells in us, in the form of his Holy Spirit. It's important to discuss the Holy Spirit, especially when it talks about joy. The Holy Spirit is an equal portion of the Godhead. He is just as important as the Father and the Son. Daily I pray, I confess this to you. I'll tell you a secret recipe. Pray daily to the Lord. That his Holy Spirit will be so amazingly present in your life. Pray daily to the Lord. Lord, help me not quench your Holy Spirit. Lord, help me not grieve your Holy Spirit. 
David's asking the Lord here, do not depart your Holy Spirit from me. That's an awesome prayer. It's a biblical prayer. It's part of his reformed sinner's prayer, if you will. Though if we are the Lord's elect, he will never leave us nor forsake us. But we can lose the empowering and validating presence of God's Spirit in our lives or ministry. It says in 1 Samuel 16, listen to this. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. And Saul's servants said to him, Surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Let our master now command your servants who are before you, to seek out a man who is a skillful player on the harp. And, I, and it shall be that he will play it with his hand when, he, when the distressing spirit from God is upon you, and you shall be well. Verse 11 was the negative, and now verse 12 is the positive. Here's more about joy. Joy. Verse 12. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, And uphold me with thy free spirit. David is doing the right thing. He's again repenting, confessing, and forsaking sin in his life. And so must we. We cannot say that too much. David didn't lose his soul, but he lost his song. He lost his joy. And so we ask God to restore his joy back into his soul. You see, joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, a fruit of the Holy Spirit. And I often pray every day, I pray actually aloud. God knows our thoughts, but the devil can hear us. And I pray, Lord, I beg for each and every fruit of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I want more joy. Give me more peace, more joy, more love, more kindness, more self-control, more gentleness, etc., etc., We need to pray for restoration of joy in our life. We need to struggle with that, Christians. Don't ever lay down that sword. Don't ever give up. We cannot lose our salvation again, but we can lose the joy of our salvation. Don't quander in that area. In the following passage, we see David transition into a man that will be fruitful and productive in kingdom building. Kingdom building is what this church must be all about. Sure, I would like a better president. But if you really want to make America great again, the answer is in the church. The answer is in the pulpit. The answer is us as soldiers in the world, out there, kingdom building, preaching and sharing the gospel. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He's an awesome old school man. God rest his soul. And he said, quote, I just saw this actually on Facebook this morning. Those who know their Bible should not be surprised at the state of the world as it is. If we know the Bible, we should not be surprised at the state of the affairs of this world as it is or the state of America. When I see America falling apart the way it is, church, I find it, I find joy in that. I really do. And I want you to, because I know that God's word is truthful. 
All the end times indicators were foretold to us in the scriptures. That this world would fall apart. The Satan is actually called the God, little g, of this world. Our duty is to be salt of the earth in light of the world, be Christ reflectors and engage the world with the sword of the Lord, dress with the whole armor of God, and infiltrate the world and try to take over the world, which is kingdom building. Those who know their Bible should not be surprised at the state of the world as it is. I actually find joy in that. I actually find find it to be exciting to be a Christian in these times. Because the world's falling apart, just as the Bible said it would. Please, beg God that he would give you peace and joy in that area if you're struggling. Just like David did. I need joy, more joy. His life had fallen apart. Next is verses 13 through 17. Being thankful and fruitful. Verse 13. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways. After God does all these things, now he's actually making a promise to God. Some people say that we should never make a promise to God. God, if you save me, I will do this. Or God, if you do this, I will do that. But the truth is, if it's right, if our motive's right, if it truly, if, if, if you really are meaning it, it can be biblical, because David did it right here. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Some of the most aggressive sinners become the most aggressive saints. Men like the Apostle Paul or David here. God redeems them and so they go on their mission field to teach, preach, evangelize, and tell others. My motto is I've been radically saved and radically changed by a radical God. Let the media call us radicals. Who cares? Consider that a badge of honor. Let them call us extremists. We must be so different than the world, not of this world, so set apart, as the Bible describes that as being peculiar people in this world because of his holiness upon us. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. David feels terribly guilty of shedding Uriah's blood. Now he's telling the Lord that he will boast in the Lord and proclaim the Lord and his repentance, forgiveness, and restoration from the Lord. Because God knows all, we should be specific in our confessions. David's sin of adultery and murder were capital offenses, but worse, he sinned against an all-knowing, almighty God. Spurgeon said this, Honest penitents do not fetch a compass and confess their sins in an elegant periphesis, but they come to the point, call a spade a spade, and make a clean breast of all what other course is rational in dealing with the omniscient. Wow. How else shall we deal with the omniscient? Who's the omniscient? (laughs) There's only one that's omniscient. That is Almighty God, Elohim. Verse 15. O Lord, open thy open thou my lips, and my mouth shall shew forth thy praise. I've heard many pastors over the decades, whether in person I've heard it, and I've also heard it on radio many times, 
tell their congregation something to the effect of this. God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. And, and, and they're trying to tell the congregations to remember the bumper sticker in the 70s? Steve, Robin, I, we remember that bumper sticker in the 70s. It said, get in, sit down, hold on, and shut up. That was the bumper sticker. That's not what God tells us to do. We're to come to this church, and we're to be equipped and sent out and speak out. And as Paul said, speak boldly as I ought to speak in Ephesians 6. Yeah, it's true, there is a time, that there is a time to be swift to hear and slow to speak, as it says in James. But there's a time to open our mouths boldly. Bold as a lion. David's lips were sealed shut by his sin. That is a time to remain silent. When we're in unrepented sin, we certainly don't want to be a hypocrite. That's one of the benefits of being cleansed and having a continual confessed, repentant heart is now we can speak freely and speak boldly without conviction and without being a hypocrite. Now he's free to express himself without any hypocrisy in his life through this washing, blotting out, and cleansing process that God is doing in David's life. Don't believe the unbiblical phrase, It's hard to pin down where this origin came from. Some says a Roman Catholic priest. Some says no. But, quote, preach the gospel at all times and use words if necessary. I've heard so many Protestant modern pastors use that cliche. But the scriptures speak just the opposite. That statement's not only unbiblical, it is anti-biblical. Jesus said in Luke chapter 14, beginning with verse 22, and the, and the servant said, Master, speaking to Jesus, It is done as you commanded, and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, listen to Jesus, Go into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. Again, we are to go and show and tell We are to go and tell them in the streets, out on the highways and hedges. One of the places that I enjoy preaching the gospel is right on Waterman Avenue, when the DMV does have a lot of people, and stand on the highway between them and the hedges, literally between the highways and the hedges, and preaching the glorious gospel to everybody that can hear. We need to do that in the marketplace. We need to do that in the strip clubs, not in the strip clubs, but on the outside of the strip clubs. You know, when uh, Larry Flint opened the Hustler Gentleman's Club in Redlands, I was infuriated. I was so angry. In my little city, Redlands, the Hustlers Strip Club, and all my joy was gone. And you know, one of the things that restored that joy was taking that righteous indignation and standing on the sidewalk and preaching and commanding all men and all women that walked into that place to repentance and preaching the law of God and preaching the gospel until they kept calling the police. And God restored my joy. You want to have joy? Get mad at this world. It does no good to complain about anything unless we can offer a solution to the problem. What's the solution, church? The gospel which is the power of God unto salvation. God will restore your joy just in that way alone. 
the bars, the abortion mills, vice activity locations, the courthouse, wherever we can go, at least hand out tracts and share the gospel. Verses 16 through 17. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, thou wilt not despise. Oh thou God, please don't despise me. Lord, I don't want to be under your wrath. I want to be under your love. Your mercy, your grace, your loving kindness. God does not desire sacrifices or lip service, nor does he want rituals, ceremonies, or spiritualists, but rather he desires heartfelt obedience, repentance and obedience. No, that's not a work salvation. That's works after salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Calvin said this, There may be another reason why David here affirms that God would not accept of a sacrifice, nor be pleased with a burnt offering. No particular sacrifices were appointed by the law of Moses to expiate the guilt of murder and adultery. The person who had perpetrated these crimes was, according to the divine law, to be punished with death. David, therefore, may be understood as declaring that it was utterly vain for him to think of resorting to sacrifices and burnt offerings with a view to the expiation of his guilt, that his criminality was of such a character that the ceremonial law made no provision for his deliverance from the doom which his deeds of horror deserved, and that the only sacrifices which would avail were those mentioned in the succeeding verse, the sacrifices of a broken heart. Close quote. Next, verses 18 through 19 is prayer for national restoration. Verse 18. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou walls of Jerusalem. It's been said that Nehemiah built the walls around Jerusalem with a cement trowel in one hand and a sword for battle in the other. And that's, too, what we must do while kingdom building. It's a beautiful imagery to think of. I'm all for walls being built around our nation, as David was. But if we're not kingdom building centric, Christ centric, gospel centric, then the walls are all futile or vanity. Spurgeon said this, verse 18, regarding these walls. This had been one of David's schemes to wall in the holy city, and he desires to see it completed. But we believe he had a more spiritual meaning and prayed for the prosperity of the Lord's cause and people. He had done mischief by his sin and had, as it were, pulled down her walls. He therefore implores the Lord to undo the evil and establish his church. God can make his cause to prosper, and in answer to prayer, he will do so. Without his building, we labor in vain. Therefore, we are the more instant and constant in prayer. There is surely no grace in us if we do not fill for the church of God and take a lasting interest in its welfare. Close quote. Verse 19. Then thou... 
Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall thy offer bullocks upon thy altar. When we confess our sins, when we are a repentant people and a repentant church, when we walk in fellowship and walk in discipleship, when we are restored to the Lord, it is then that God will be pleased with us. Church, lastly, let that be this church. Let that be us corporately. And let us let that be us individually as well. Father, thank you for your beautiful, inerrant, sufficient, and valuable word. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will edify us, encourage us, fill us with more joy, Lord, more joy of you, more joy in the Lord. And Christ, we thank you again for saving a wretch like me, for saving the rest of all of the saints sitting in this congregation. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.